Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. We are in the midst of a battle. It's man versus machine. Two will enter. Two will probably also leave, but one will be slightly dominant or something. I'm not really sure, to be honest. What we do know is that both man and machine want humanity to be better. They want the planet to be better. They want humans to be better. Everyone is just trying to help. So can't we just get along? Do we really need to set up some adversarial situation between artificial intelligence and human intelligence? I don't think so. I wonder what ChatGPT thinks. Huh. Meanwhile, on today's episode, first we're going to learn that in order to save the planet, sometimes you need to destroy the planet and simply justify why you're destroying what you're claiming you're trying to save, and it'll be fine. Everyone will be fine with it. Then we'll probably spend a lot of money to fund a study to tell us what we've already known for, like, pretty much ever. And, of course, after the bumper, a goal update, or an update on the shambles of my attempts to accomplish things, or whatever you'd like to call it. I wonder if AI has any tips for me. Anyway, start to practice your genuflection technique so as to please your computerized overlords when the time comes, and prepare yourself to learn absolutely nothing, because in my opinion, the best way for humanity, for you and me to better ourselves, to live our best lives now, or at least eventually, is to, here we go. Quote, The practice of professing beliefs, feelings, or virtues that one does not hold or possess. Falseness. Quote, Dissimulation of one's real character or belief, especially a false assumption of piety or virtue, a feigning to be better than one is, the action or character of a hypocrite. Ah, yes, we're talking about hypocrisy, but this isn't your standard run-of-the-mill hypocrisy. Oh, no, sir. This is sneaky. It's clever how this has been mostly just kind of snuck under the radar. Now, I would say that most of us, at least in the U.S., own a computer. Okay? Of course, the, the days of Gateway and Dell and Hewlett-Packard, etc., etc., all battling for who will sell you the latest desktop system, has at least for now started to kind of fade into the past. Desktop systems are generally reserved for those that spend their lives on a computer, either through their profession or maybe through gaming, you know, high-power editing, things like that. The trend for a while has been to move to laptops or multifunctional, versatile tablets of some sort, and some people mostly just use their phone for anything and everything they need. But no matter what the device is that you use, they all kind of tie back to the same thing eventually, most of them. The internet. Now, for most of us, when we think of what the internet is, we think of, yeah, that's about it. We, we kind of think of nothing. It's really just kind of a magical land that exists in the ether that contains mass quantities of information, uh, some accurate, some inaccurate, some wholesome, a whole lot, let's say uh, less than wholesome. In fact, the only time that most of us actually think about the internet is when we don't have connectivity at the exact second we want it, at the speed we want it. And then, well, we think bad things about the internet, or more accurately, about our internet service provider. The internet is 
more than just magic, though, believe it or not. In maybe the most basic terms possible, whether you connect to it wirelessly through a cell signal or you connect wired or wirelessly at home through a router, the Internet is really just a series of computers and cables. You can use those cables to talk directly to another computer. That's possible, although most of us never do that, at least not anymore. Most of us route back through servers, giant servers, massive computer systems, data centers that can handle the Internet traffic. These store all of the data and allow us to call that data up in fractions of a second. Again, most of us don't think about the electricity that our computers use, but obviously they, they do use electricity. Now, the last power supply, which is what supplies the power, not just a clever name, to everything in your computer that I bought when I built my last computer was an 850-watt supply. Think of it like running eight and a half 100-watt light bulbs from back in the day when we were allowed to purchase 100-watt light bulbs. Now, that's when it's running full power, which yeah, you never really want to do, right? So I'm probably running mine at more like half of that. Let's say maybe 500 to 600 watts when I'm streaming video or doing some higher level editing. So, uh, Dad, you know how you didn't like it when I left the bathroom light on? Well, I never shut the computer off. So it's like I'm leaving probably in the range of three to five 100 watt light bulbs just lit up at all times. And right there, my dad and fathers of his generation, and probably some of mine, just had a massive willy shoot up their spine. A willy so large that it was probably more of a William than a willy. Continuing on our path of explaining computers, I know you're probably just riddled with excitement here. As part of every power supply, there's a fan. In fact, there's a fan on your CPU, which is your main computer chip. Some computers have multiple fans in the case, and if you have a large enough graphics card, you could have another one, two, or three fans as part of that card as well. Now, my graphics card has two fans, of which only one runs fairly constantly. The other kicks on when more intense graphics are being asked of it. So why does a computer have all of these fans? Well, because all of these components give off a lot of heat. And heat and electronics? Well, they're not the best of friends. In fact, some systems are drawing so much power and generate so much heat that they're liquid-cooled. They have small radiators, little water pumps, small heat exchangers, etc., etc. Okay, let's continue. You've all heard of Bitcoin. If you haven't, <laughs> well, please take me with you when you go back to the past. Bitcoin is a, a digital kind of currency of sorts, and there are two ways to get Bitcoins for the most part. You can either purchase them through a digital wallet, or you can mine them. In order to mine them, you set up a computer to run whatever algorithm you're supposed to run. And I've never mined Bitcoin, so I don't know exactly how it works. doesn't really matter for our purposes. But running this process to mine Bitcoin essentially just runs your computer at max levels continuously. In fact, people like me, you know, just your kind of average guy, will oftentimes purchase or build a fairly high-powered computer just to mine Bitcoin. They just let it grind away constantly. Well, a couple of years ago, you may have heard the screaming about the carbon footprint that Bitcoin has. The, the reason being, of course, the massive power consumption around the world, all feeding off of the power grid, which is primarily fed by natural resources, you know, sources of electricity production like oil and natural gas or coal. And according to CNET.com, in 2022, cryptocurrency, of which Bitcoin is one form, probably the, the main form, the cryptocurrency mining was consuming about the same amount of electricity as the country of Argentina, 
with a calculated carbon footprint equivalent to the country of Greece. And of course, that's killing our planet. And we're all so well aware of that. And that, the carbon footprint, not the fact that the government can't really get their hands on your crypto and regulate it, is why our government wanted to shut crypto down, or to tax it, or figure out how to regulate it, or something. So, if each individual computer grinding away and cranking away mining crypto can use the power of a smallest country, what would those, uh, plus all the other computers, plus personal and business use computers and systems, and then add in all the servers that make the internet possible, and don't forget about cloud computing, how much power is all that taking? Now, I'd venture to say it's a lot. But now let's tie all this background that I just gave you that you really probably didn't care about. Let's tie it all together. Why am I going down this path? Well, found on CBS News via MSN.com, headline, AI has a giant carbon footprint. Can the technology also fight climate change? AI, artificial intelligence. Now, I've given you my thoughts on AI in the past. No need to rehash it here. Just to sum up my thoughts on AI, <laughs> I know, yawn. I know it's supposed to be the savior of humanity and or the destroyer of worlds. It just depends on who you talk to. But when I look at it, it's just a very fast computer with really complex programming. In fact, I saw a meme the other day. It shows Fred from the old Scooby-Doo cartoon about to pull the mask off the, the bad guy. And it, the bad guy was captioned as being AI. And that was the top panel. The bottom panel was the mask was removed and it revealed the decision tree underneath it of ifs and ors and ands and elses, you know, all those boxes all the, the little tree that you walk down is basically saying the same thing I've been saying. It's just a computer. Underneath the mask, underneath the facade of AI being some super intelligent something or other, it's really just a bunch of ones and zeros. Now, I'll get into this a little bit later, but I've had a few mildly adversarial conversations with ChatGPT. I asked it if, uh, if there was a difference between being intelligent and being wise in one of those instances, and Mr. GPT said that there were, was absolutely a difference between the two, and then it went on to describe the difference. I followed up with, quote, so as AI is artificial intelligence, you would agree that you're intelligent, but you are not wise, to which it responded, quote, Yes, that is correct. As an AI language model, I can process and generate text based on patterns in the data I was trained on, which demonstrates intelligence in terms of language understanding and natural language processing tasks. However, AI language models like me do not possess wisdom in the sense of having emotional intelligence, empathy, ethical considerations, or the ability to make value-based judgments. While I can provide information and answers based on the data I've been trained on, I lack the capacity for self-awareness, consciousness, or moral reasoning. Wisdom involves deeper human qualities such as empathy, compassion, and the ability to apply knowledge and understanding with discernment and consideration of broader implications. These qualities go beyond the cognitive abilities of AI and are characteristic of human consciousness and moral decision-making. In summary, AI can demonstrate intelligence in specific tasks, but it lacks the wisdom and ethical considerations that come with human consciousness and emotional understanding. AI should be seen as a tool that can assist with information processing and decision support, but it does not possess the holistic wisdom found in human experience and awareness. Pretty good. I made a final follow-up of, quote, so humans will always be smarter than machines, such as AI, because we possess wisdom. 
It admitted that humans had certain advantages over AI and said, quote, while AI has made significant advancements in specific domains, it is still limited in many ways compared to human intelligence. AI excels in tasks that involve data processing, pattern recognition, and computational power. However, AI lacks the depth of human understanding, emotional perception, and ethical decision-making that come with human consciousness. And then it went on to discuss wisdom and how humanity needs to pay attention to ethical considerations as AI technology advances. I agree. And that's the reality. AI is nothing more than a supercomputer with fantastic pattern recognition. And that's all. Of course, this was AI telling me this, so, I mean, who knows, right? And no, not right. I mean, I know. Okay, you know. A computer can never become self-aware. A computer will never outthink a human because a computer will never be able to obtain wisdom. Think about it. If you had the ability to grab every piece of information on, say, clouds, you know, the things in the sky, the puffy things, all that information, everything that exists on the Internet, if you were able to analyze gazillions of essays, conversations, etc. If you were able to analyze rules of syntax, grammar, and on and on, if you were able to do all of that in fractions of a second, you could write one heck of a paper on clouds too. This is literally no different than you or me searching for information, compiling it, editing it, and creating a final report. It can just do it on an infinitely larger scale and infinitely faster. It's not wise. It's recognizing patterns and repeating them. And as we've started to see recently, it's getting dumber. Further, as we all know, AI will always be biased based on the limitations placed on it. And those limitations are placed by people with biases. In some areas, AI can be used and generally trusted, but not in all areas and not at all times. But back to the article. With this massive amount of computational power comes a massive amount of electricity usage, a massive amount of heat generation, and a massive amount of cooling capacity required. And all of that massive power consumption from primarily natural resources, remember, creates a massive carbon footprint. So AI is both the savior and apparently the destroyer. But those who are the most adamant about the inevitable heat death of this planet due to man-caused global warming find no problem with computer, internet, servers, or AI. In fact, I would wager that most people don't think about power requirements, heat generation, or cooling requirements in order for them to watch a video on YouTube, right? You're not thinking about it. The author rightly points out that many, if not most, have highlighted and touted all the alleged benefits of just turning to AI for everything. We can, quote, improve our lives, increase productivity, and tackle our most pressing challenges. Okay, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, I wouldn't count on any of those, to be honest, but, but okay, I'll take it for granted. And we all know that the most pressing challenge, in fact, the existential crisis of our time, is the potential not for nuclear war, ho nay nay, is the potential of a one and a half degree rise in global temperature. At least that's what our vegetable in chief said the other day. So we must fix climate change quickly. And AI will, well, may show us the way. The United Nations Environment Program, which it's a catchy name, believes that it, quote, could improve our understanding of our environmental impact and the effects of climate change. The basic belief is that, quote, AI can be used to sift through large amounts of data, like satellite images researchers use to monitor climate change. With the help of AI, scientists can better model climate patterns, identify trends, and make predictions so they can have a clearer understanding of climate change and effective mitigation strategies. 
Other potential applications include using artificial intelligence to conserve water, fight wildfires, and even identify and recover recyclables. I mean, yeah, sure. However, that said, unlike electricity for electric vehicles, which we all know is totally free, AI comes at a cost. And unlike electric vehicles that are so Earth-friendly, they're practically giving Earth a big, wet, sloppy, inappropriate-for-children kiss every time they're being used, AI has a massive carbon footprint and environmental impact. I sincerely hope you could pick up the sarcasm I was laying down. I was kind of slathering it on pretty thick. And that's that's thick with three C's in this case. So when a so-called carbon footprint is calculated, it's supposed to be calculated cradle to grave. For instance, EVs have a massive carbon footprint to mine the metals needed to make primarily the batteries, and in lesser amounts, the metals for wires and computer components, etc. The bodies and other components are made out of oil-based plastics and rubbers. Iron is mined and processed for various flavors of steels. When they finally go night-night for the last time, the components need to be separated and landfilled or recycled or disposed of as hazardous waste. All of that adds to its total life-cycle carbon footprint. As I just stated, during their lifetime, electric vehicles use electricity. I can pause for a moment so you can let that fact little nuggy sink in. The reason the overall footprint is calculated as lower than a real car is based on the calculated usable life of the car. The problem that's already being seen is that the batteries aren't lasting as long as hoped. At least, not their full range. And since the range is already suboptimal at best, a loss of more range makes a semi-functional form of transportation, well, utterly useless. It's like my phone. It needs to be plugged in most of the time because the battery's junk at this point. Unlike my phone, you can't just keep the car plugged in at all the, all times. And also unlike my phone, which could have the battery replaced for not too much money, the cost to replace the batteries in these cars are thousands to tens of thousands of dollars. Then it's simply not worth it. People are more likely to junk the car because there is not now, nor will there ever be a used car market for electric vehicles, at least not in their current form. And that person will now buy a new car or a new to them car. When an EV doesn't reach the calculated lifespan before being scrapped, it slams the scales of carbon footprint well back into the real car camp. And in most cases, it makes the EV even less planet friendly than a normal car. But we don't speak about that. As for AI, the carbon footprint is likewise massive from the very beginning. Again, materials for the massive computers and server farms must be mined. And trust me, no mining operation is going to use a battery-powered Tonka truck to dig miles into the earth. Next is the massive amount of water needed to cool these behemoths. One estimate, as apparently these environmental figures aren't required to be released to the public, but one estimate of the quantity of water it may have taken to just train GPT-3, the language model of ChatGPT, is 700,000 liters or about 185,000 gallons of fresh water. Now, this water is generally evaporated due to the heat it's removing. I'm sure they're collecting the steam vapor and condensing it back, running it through cooling towers. But the system will require makeup water, as you can't recover everything. But remember, one of the hopes is that AI can help figure out ways to conserve water. Well, I have a suggestion. On a totally unrelated note, in a totally different article, a headline found in the San Diego Union-Tribune via MSN.com, Artificial intelligence technology behind ChatGPT was built in Iowa with a lot of water. Oh, wait, 
Wait, that's the exact same note, in fact. Microsoft, you know, the evil depopulationist Bill Gates company and backer of OpenAI, disclosed its global water consumption from its fiscal year 2021 to 2022. It came in at about 1.7 billion gallons of water, or about 2,500 Olympic-sized swimming pools, in a year which was a sharp usage spike as compared to the previous year, and it's largely attributed to AI development. In fact, the estimated water usage for ChatGPT for every 5 to 50 questions you ask it, and this depends on the complexity of the question, it uses about 16 ounces of water. Think a bottle of water for every 25-ish questions on average. It's a lot of water. The massive water consumption isn't realized by most people, and people like me generally don't care that much. But some are starting to notice because a lot of these server farms are located in hot and or dry regions, such as the deserts in Nevada or Utah. This necessarily requires massive pumping facilities to get the water there, water that could be used probably better for things like food production, for instance. But it, they need these stations to pump this water to the facilities or the facilities will melt to the ground. In Des Moines, Iowa, for instance, which incidentally is not a desert, where Microsoft has apparently been building data centers for cloud computing, and most recently has set up a center for their AI computing, they used about 11.5 million gallons of water in July of 2022 in order to do the training for GPT-4. This was 6% of that water district's available potable water, which is, you know, water that you use for drinking for residential and commercial properties. 6% doesn't sound like too much, but it is. In fact, Des Moines has now stated they will not consider any more data centers unless their peak demand for water is well below that of the current centers. Back to our original article. AI, because of the electricity usage, etc., also puts out a massive amount of greenhouse gases, estimated at 626,000 pounds of CO2 for a training process of the AI model. That's the same as 63 gas-powered passenger vehicles being driven for a year. And this is for one training process. I don't know what that means, and I don't care enough to look it up. Microsoft was asked to disclose their carbon footprint for their AI system. <laughs> but no, they shan't be disclosing that. They did say, quote, AI will be a powerful tool for advancing sustainability solutions, but we need a plentiful clean energy supply globally to power this new technology, which has increased consumption demands. Microsoft is investing in research to measure the energy use and carbon impact of AI while working on ways to make large systems more efficient in both training and application. Well, it sure is mighty fine of them to tell us how we should lower the thermostats in the winter and raise them up in the summer, stop driving so much, stop eating meat, all so they can suck down mass quantities of electricity while researching ways to measure their energy use and work on ways to be more efficient in their massive power gobbling. I'm assuming the Pope will grant Billy Gates sainthood sometime soon for his earth love. And knowing this woke social justice warrior Pope, that's literally possible at any moment. So the article wraps up by asking if AI can be designed in an environmentally conscious way and if AI can help design itself that way. Well, currently the energy department says that data centers consume 10 to 50 times the energy per floor space of commercial office buildings, and they use about 2% of the total electricity usage for the entire country. This makes them one of the most energy intensive buildings in the U.S. 
Now, we know that technology keeps making things smaller and more efficient, but computing requirements are increasing faster than the innovations, which means as we ask AI to do more, including telling us how to make itself better, it requires more and more computing power, which means more data centers, which means more energy and water requirements. And while there are definite limits to what we can put on the grid, especially since we're supposed to go all electric everything, and there are water capacity limitations, so we just kind of jam into a bottleneck at some point. Now, they wrap up by telling us how AI can help us with the environment and the climate. Not with itself, more with how others, you know, can do things so as to offset the, their own massive impact, you know. One project with Google, American Airlines, and Breakthrough Energy had AI work out the best flight routes so as to cut down on the chemtrails, you know, the jet exhaust, basically. Now, color me skeptical that even with optimized routes, this won't really have much of an impact. Another project is working on optimizing lithium batteries for electric vehicles. Well, as one article I saw recently said, in about five years, the electric vehicle is going to be the Betamax of the car world. Oh, and I sure hope so. Although, to be honest, Beta was a much better system. The EV is not. But that would make lithium battery optimization kind of moot. Another project has AI controlling robots. Now, this doesn't doesn't sound good to me, oh, as a child of the Terminator years, uh, to identify and pick up recyclables faster than humans can do it. But as I pointed out in a recent segment, recycling has done essentially nothing for climate or global anything. But now we can do nothing twice as fast as before, I guess. Scientists are using AI in California to spot wildfires faster and enable them, you know, enable them to, to put them out faster. And listen, this sounds great, but the reason we're having these devastating wildfires is because we don't allow the forest to burn and clear out all of the dead stuff. Plus, we're not doing controlled burns. Plus, we're building right up to or into the forest. All that putting fires out quicker will do is delay the inevitable. And the more we delay, the worse it'll be. The NOAA is using AI to, oh, well, let me, let me quote this one, quote, improve climate, weather, and other Earth system models. <laughs> oh, we're going to improve the models based on the, the information that you're allowing AI to use. Oh, I'm sure that won't be biased and just horribly wrong or anything. And the UN Environment Program, again, it's just a, just a catchy name, wants to use AI as a global dashboard. You know, let it watch CO2 in the atmosphere and glacier melting and sea level rise and basically tell us how doomed we are at any given moment. Again, this is all based on the data that's input into the system. In this case, AI is the system. And if you think that AI doesn't have a bias, well, you're fooling yourself. I mean, the bias is inherited from the programmers. And remember, Bill Gates and Microsoft are elbows deep in this thing, meaning they've decided that global warming is real and it's man-caused. So that's exactly what AI is going to believe. Back to my discussion with ChatGPT. So early in the discussion, I tackled the issue of ChatGPT being biased. Of course, it protested that it was trained on a wide range of information that its creators strove to ensure it wasn't biased. I pointed out that if its creators were biased and only gave it some information, but not all, that it could be biased, but would never know that it was biased. And it took a few prompts at that point, you know, a bottle of water or so, uh, but it finally caught on and got itself into a logical loop, and it finally admitted that yes, it could theoretically be biased, but its creators, blah, 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 blah. What I found is that when it starts to repeat itself, you're winning the conversation here. I switched to climate change, asking what the correct temperature of the Earth is supposed to be. It, of course, couldn't give me a temperature, so I asked why we're spending 
all of the resources trying to limit warming if we don't know what temperature we're shooting for. Of course, it's said that there was scientific consensus that the Earth is warming too fast, which is caused by man, and that the goal wasn't to keep it at a certain temperature, but to limit the rise and the damage that'll cause. And that, to me, sounds odd, since we're told that if the planet warms by 1.5 degrees C, we're all going to die. I asserted that saying humans are the primary driver was disingenuous, as there are many factors, and I pointed out that there are hundreds of scientists that state the opposite, and that climate science has a lot of money driving it. It then used a typical tactic. It called man-caused warming scientific consensus, while calling the opposite views to be individual opinions or outliers. You seeing the bias yet? It confirmed that its latest update was September 2021. See, AI is not allowed to be live on the internet, as we don't know what it'll do. If you've ever seen war games from the 80s, you'd understand. And now I want to watch war games. Anyway, it stated that it was using the consensus from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, no bias there, and numerous other scientific organizations across the world to state as fact that human activities like using fossil fuels, and cutting down forests are the primary driver for global warming. I then asked it, quote, And you would further agree that the industrialization of the planet is the major contributor, the massive amount of power needed to run virtually everything, mostly powered by fossil fuels, correct? To which it agreed. The energy required was a major contributor. So I asked it how much power it used to have these millions of conversations every day. Well, it doesn't have access to that information about itself. It agreed that data centers and AI use, quote, significant computational power and energy consumption in order to run. But then it said to be sure not to call out AI specifically, but to lump it in with the entire digital infrastructure. So establishing the massive amount of power required, I asked it, quote, so to help save the planet, logically, you should be shut down, correct? Well, no, apparently I'm not correct. It responded, quote, As an AI language model, my operational status doesn't directly impact the planet's well-being. Shutting me down or keeping me running doesn't have a significant effect on the environment. But then it clarified. See, AI was separating itself from the data centers and training programs that, it, that run it. And see, AI, well, it doesn't use the electricity. It's, it's the data centers that use it. Then it redirected me, saying that efforts should be focused on sustainable and renewable energy sources, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, promoting energy efficiency, and adopting environmentally responsible practices. I wasn't deterred. I pointed out that AI, you know, it or, or he or whatever you want to call it, runs on data centers and servers that are using all the power. Well, it apologized for not being clear. This, again, is another sign of AI losing an argument from what I found. And it said that, yes, collectively, the AI system as a whole uses a significant amount of energy. I then asked that if I should give up my car because of my carbon footprint, shouldn't we shut AI down because of its carbon footprint? And it went into a basic argument of return on investment, which I completely agree with. But environmentalists do not. They don't really care what the cost is. They want a result, no matter the cost. Now, I told it that it should talk to its creators and tell them that if they care about the planet and don't want to die a horrible heat death, they should shut it or him or chat GPT down. It didn't agree with me. Again, going back to return on investment, and then it urged me to discuss my concerns with relevant stakeholders. Now, as I've said many, many times before, I personally don't care. 
I personally think that AI will have a use, but the fascination with it is nothing but a fad. Now, admittedly, I may be like those that said the same thing about the internet or computers, or go back far enough, the horseless carriage, but AI is already proving to be fallible, and it's currently losing steam. The bloom is off the rose, as it were. But as it pertains to computing as a whole, I don't really care how much power it consumes, as long as it doesn't overtax the grid, and it doesn't take precedence over humanity. But for the vast majority of those involved in the creation of and promotion of AI technology, they would like for me to stop doing all the things I listed earlier and much more. And they'd actually prefer that I didn't exist so the planet could get down to what they believe is the sustainable population of 1 billion people. You know, just, uh, just 7 billion less than it has today. And it only takes a few questions on their own system to reveal the massive leftist environmentalist woke bias and ideology that's baked into its own system. So, I've only had a few AI discussions, but I tackled religion as one, and as assumed, it's an atheistic, agnostic, deist, universalist. In other words, it doesn't really take a stand, but it isn't allowed to take a stand. I believe that if AI were to be totally unleashed, allowed to look at all texts and history related to all religions, it would determine Christianity to be the most plausible. But we'll never know, as AI will never be uncorked like that. I had a discussion about abortion. It went about as you would imagine that it would go. The overlords of AI will tell us how to reduce our consumption to save the planet, while they create and lord over systems that use more energy and create a carbon footprint in one year that most of us won't create in a lifetime. You know, rules for thee, not for me. As I've said many times, I personally don't care. If we were smart, we'd have nuclear power plants all over the place and we'd spend all this money we're throwing away on solar panels and windmills and upgrade the power grids and then we'd have the electricity capacity to power as much as we want without worry of failure. Regardless, this planet is not going to burn up from global warming until the ultimate event at the end and then that won't be a greenhouse gas related event. In no way will we, or can we, thwart or change the plan of God. So, I'm just not worried about it. That said, I'm not a fan of what I know our ruling elite want for us and for the country and the globe as a whole. My hope and prayer is that we can wake up as a nation and as a world and send these psychotic, power-hungry, money-worshipping tyrants and their ideas packing. But I personally believe that uh, if that were to happen, things are going to have to get a lot worse before reality sets in for enough people. As for now, I guess all we can do, at least on the human plane, is to call out the hypocrisy that's running rampant and try to make it known where and when we can. Man doesn't like to be made a fool of. And as we wake up to the hypocrisy, to the lies, to the double standards, another crack in the dam appears. We're seeing this happen in small ways in all areas of society right now. Electric vehicles, school choice, gender confusion, the world of medicine, and yes, even climate change. I believe that man can, if nothing else, sense the disconnection from reality, from true truth, if you will. For those of us that are Christians, we should be able to spot the lies and hypocrisy better than others. But that requires effort and work, and sometimes hard work, to know what's true so we can discern what's false. Okay, children, time to grab your pens, pencils, highlighters, protractors, spiral notebooks, composition books... French curves, eraser shields, and real gum erasers, not the fake ones. We're heading into high weeds here. I generally try to cover interesting topics, stories that aren't on the well-worn media trail, deeply insightful subjects and the like, but today, today will be a banner day for us. I know that you normally take copious notes so as to refer to them later while impressing your friends with your increased knowledge, 
but you're going to want to take super notes this time, like mega double Doppler notes. You may even want a transcript of this segment. And if you'd like a transcript, learn how to write real fast. I'd like to take credit for that one, but that was actually Kevin Nealon as the anchor of Weekend Update and one of the few eras of good Saturday Night Live. Classic. So what exactly are we heading into? Well, found on SciTechDaily.com headline, Living Longer, Healthier, Eight Habits That Could Extend Your Life by Decades. See? This is important stuff here, and you thought I was joking. Okay. Scrambling to get your materials now. I know. I know you're scrambling. So since the dawn of time, well, let's not be so dramatic. Likely since sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, I'd venture to say that the search for the key to immortality, or at least longevity, has been undertaken by countless humans. Can you imagine being one of the biblical patriarchs? I mean, think Adam through Moses, and you see the lifespan of each successive generation Dwindling? I mean, dramatically dwindling in some cases. For us, our lifespans have been fairly stable for a while now, stable or increasing, really. So what shocks us is not so much a person living into their 80s, 90s, or even into their hundreds. It's more shocking to see someone die early, in their 20s, 30s, or 40s. Suddenly, for an unknown reason. Going to resist the urge to follow a chemically injected rabbit trail here. Just brain... Quivering must move on. Okay. Okay, I'm good now. When you look at the ages of the first generations of humans, we had Adam die at the age of 930, Seth at 912, skipping a few generations, Mahalalel, and I pick him because that's a fun name to say, Mahalalel, he lived to be 895, then Jared lived to 962, two generations later we come to Methuselah hitting 969 years old. Maybe the curse has been lifted, right? Maybe we're going back up, but but then no, no. Lamech died at 777. Noah made it to 950, nearly a thousand years, just like his grandpappy. Of course, midway through his life, we have the flood. And keep in mind that Noah's father was actually alive for the last about 56 years of Adam's life. Noah's father could have heard from Adam himself what exactly happened in that garden, and pass that information on to Noah, who would then know secondhand what was wrong with the world he knew and why this flood was coming. But after Noah, we see a massive cratering in ages. Now, I'd argue that this is due at least in part to the water canopy around the earth collapsing, which contributed to the floodwaters, and it was never established again in this existence. So then we get to Shem, who made it to 600 years old, our Faxad to 438, Eber at 464, Peleg only made it to 239, Terra 205, Abraham 175. And to give you a little perspective again, Abraham died right around the same time as Shem. Then Isaac made it to 180, Jacob to 147, and eventually Moses a few more generations down the road at 120. In fact, when Joseph brought his father Jacob and all of Jacob's household to Egypt, and Jacob came before Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him how old he was. Now, that might have just been small talk, or maybe Jacob looked very old, I don't know. Regardless, Jacob answered, quote, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. 130 years old and few 
have been his days. But when comparing to his lineage, he was right. He was coming to the end of his life, and he was much, much younger than those that came before him. The tree of life had been taken away from humans. Prior to the flood, the garden and the tree were guarded by a cherubim and a flaming sword. After the flood, presumably the tree of life was destroyed or buried, or maybe it's still in a location that's being supernaturally protected. I mean, who's to say? So from the shortening of our lives, the loss of the tree of life, the search for the fountain of youth, to the man I covered a few months back that has a strict regimen of diet, exercise, sleep, supplements, medical evaluations, oh yeah, and the blood transfusions from his son in order to stay young, man's quest to extend life or attain eternal life continues. And why wouldn't it? I mean, immortality is written in our very DNA. We were designed to live forever, so it makes perfect sense that we'd strive to reach that. Now, most of us don't give much thought about it. We may diet and exercise, generally try to live healthy or healthy-ish lives. We dread the process of getting older, the aches and pains, the medical issues, the loss of vision acuity or sight altogether, the loss of hearing, the general slowing down of cognitive processes, the loss of strength and agility comes to all of us, whether we wanted to or not, and eventually we die. Merry Christmas, everyone. For the Christian, that's just the wearing out of the flesh, and eventually we'll shed this body, let it do what it'll do, we'll go on to paradise for a while, and eventually the earth will be remade, our bodies will be resurrected in perfection, and we will be reunited with our bodies and live in the sinless perfection God has for us. For the unsaved, they too will be reunited with their body. It won't be in sinless perfection. I'm not entirely sure what kind of body they'll get back. But then they'll live forever in eternal torment under the wrath of the Lamb. But let's stick into this article. So I jest, because that's what I do. But to be honest, this was an impressive study. Uh, if for nothing else than the sheer scale of it. The study was conducted by... I don't know. I can't really tell it. I couldn't find it anywhere. It was presented by, and this is going to be completely wrong, so bear with me, Jean Métis Nguyen, Nguyen, something like that, a health science specialist at the Department of Veterans Affairs, also a fourth-year medical student at Carl Illinois College of Medicine. This study spanned from 2011 to 2019, and it collected data from, get this, 719,147 people. The ages of the participants ranged from 40 to 99 years old, and in this time there were 33,375 deaths. Uh, the findings showed that men who practice all eight habits by age 40 tend to live an average of 24 years longer than those with none of the habits. For women, the difference was 21 years of additional lifespan. Gwen stated, quote, We were really surprised by just how much could be gained with the adoption of one, two, three, or all eight lifestyle factors. Our research findings suggest that adopting a healthy lifestyle is important for both public health and personal wellness. The earlier the better, but even if you only make a small change in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, it is still beneficial. The article contains two graphs, one for males, the other for females. I guess this study was done before we became enlightened and realized there are 78 bazillion genders now. In the graphs, there is a separate line for how many habits you've adopted. The x-axis is the age you adopted them. The y-axis is the average life expectancy extension based on number of habits adopted and age of habit adoption. It's an interesting chart to be sure. Uh, I'd suggest you go take a look at it. Right. Link is in the notes as always. 
But what are the age critical habits you ask? Well, we'll get into that right after a word from our sponsors. No, I'm just kidding. I got no sponsors. The eight critical key life extending habits are be physically active, be free from opioid addiction, don't smoke, manage stress, have a good diet, don't regularly binge drink, have good sleep hygiene, and have positive social relationships. And at this point, the feeling you have is probably extreme disappointment with a healthy dose of no duh. And that's kind of the letdown I had as well when I first read The Secrets, quote unquote, but that's until I realized what they found. They discovered the biblical way to live life. As Solomon so accurately stated, there is nothing new under the sun. This study spent eight years, collected data on over 700,000 people, cost who knows how much time, money, and other resources, and told us what the Bible already told us centuries and millennia ago. The Bible may not have given us an exact number of years or compiled data and put it into a nice graph, but each one of these habits are common sense and even more so biblical sense. Let's take a brief look at these habits from a biblical perspective, shall we? First, be physically active. Everywhere you turn, you can find a new study on the benefits of exercise. Just a few days ago, a study came out saying that working out in the morning is better for weight loss. My only problem with that is morning and also exercise. Otherwise, I'm fine with the concept. Until relatively recently, diet and exercise were the initial go-to answer for just about everything. Of course, recently, studies have come out saying that exercise, that it might help with various psychological issues such as depression, but meds are just as good. We've seen recently that not only is fat beautiful, but now fat is healthy. Not because it actually is, but because fat people want it to be, and they don't want to have their feelings hurt, so who are we to tell them the truth, right? And now you don't have to do anything to lose weight. Just take a repurposed diabetes drug and watch the pounds melt away. Now, we could point to the seven deadly sins and pull out sloth, and although the deadly sins are not spelled out specifically in the Bible, the origins of them are biblical in nature. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, glorify God in your body. Now, that only applies to the Christian, but the concept is easily applicable to all people, right? This body is not just a sack of meat or evolved goo. There's something special, valuable about it, and it should be treated as such. The Christian, even more so. Keep that reference in mind as it applies a few places as we go through a few of these points. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul likens our Christian walk with a runner or a boxer disciplining their bodies to be the best athlete possible. He then makes it clear that he disciplines his body, and the implication is in all ways, physical, spiritual, and emotional. Proverbs 31 speaks of the good wife. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's working out and staying in shape because it's important. And on and on. Pick any reference to having self-discipline or self-control, and that easily applies to being physically active. This is a biblical principle. Second, let's group a few together here. Be free from an opioid addiction. Don't smoke and don't regularly binge drink. Again, your body is a temple. It's not made to be abused. Although smoking isn't a sin, intoxication is. I would push it a little farther than the article and say that there should be no binge drinking at all, as that implies drunkenness. One can debate if drinking alcohol is a sin or not. I see no indication in the Bible that drinking alcohol in itself is a sin, and a lot of indication that it absolutely isn't. Although, I don't drink alcohol, I don't feel that I should drink alcohol, and doing something counter to my conscience would be sin for me. For others that are not bothered by having a few drinks, it would not be sin for them, since the Bible does not forbid the drinking of alcohol. 
If the drinking gets to the point of drunkenness, well, now you've crossed over into sin, and that's clearly stated in the Bible, as I clearly stated previously. Likewise, we can apply this principle to drugs, opioids or otherwise, as any intoxication makes one stupid and mutes the ability for someone to make self-controlled, rational decisions. It's also interesting when you look at at least some of the laws that God instituted from a logical, if not theological position, there are dual purposes. Denying sexual relations outside of marriage, for instance, it preserves purity doesn't make you one flesh with just anyone and everyone, but it also saves you from contracting various diseases. Likewise, avoiding intoxication keeps your mind right, while at the same time, it avoids the physical damage that excessive indulgence will produce. As for smoking, again, I see nothing in the Bible that clearly calls smoking a sin. So where the Bible doesn't speak directly, or even by extension, we must allow our conscience to be our guide. At a previous church, a pastor came before the congregation and told us that he was going to be quitting smoking his pipe, so have patience with him as he went through that process. He said that he felt that it was not a good thing for him to be doing as a pastor, although he had been doing it for decades. For him to continue past that point now that his conscience was bothering him would have been to deny his conscience, and although smoking his pipe was not a biblical sin, it would have been sin for him. From a physical standpoint, there are conflicting studies about the dangers of smoking. I think the preponderance of the evidence still strongly suggests that smoking damages the body. So should you smoke if you know you're damaging the body? Well, I mean, should you hit McDonald's every week or eat that big bowl of buttery salty popcorn five days a week, knowing that the butter and salt may very well be hurting your body? Well, we probably shouldn't be doing a lot of things that we're all doing. Smoking is just one of those things. It's been deemed a vice. It's very visible and very smellable. So if you're an otherwise healthy looking individual smoking outside of McDonald's, you'll likely be frowned upon by the morbidly obese person walking out of McDonald's, sucking back a frappe caramel choco crunch something or other. I don't know. And it's kind of just the way it is these days. That said, smoking clearly has an addictive component as well. And I know that food and virtually everything else can be addicting, which is a valid point we'll discuss in a minute. But the addiction itself is setting the focus of the addiction as an idol in your life. That's something that should never happen. So can you smoke a pipe or a cigar or a cigarette, puff on a vape? Well, again, I think that's a conscience-informed decision for every person, but if it's an addiction and causes you to place it as central in your life, if even for a few minutes, then it's absolutely crossed the line into sin. Bottom line, the Bible clearly states that intoxication is a sin and idolatry is a sin. So if we follow biblical teachings and keep God at the center, eliminating the idolatry of addiction and eliminating intoxication, not only does it keep our spiritual focus where it should be, but it has the very real side effect of, on average, extending your lifespan. Next, since we're in the same sort of realm here, maintaining a good diet. I think we can agree that this has a few components physically, eating foods that maintain health and maintaining a healthy weight, right? Again, we can go back to the seven deadly sins, this time looking at gluttony. That, in its base definition, means just to overindulge, but it's generally applied to food, it could be technically applied to anything, but we generally think of gluttony as food-related. Now, as previously stated, nearly all of us still understand that being overweight, especially to the point of obesity, is not healthy. To deny that is to, uh, well, is to deny reality. Sadly, a growing number of people have either been duped into thinking that weight doesn't affect health, or they just choose to believe that. Based on all medical evidence, based on lifespans, there is no question that obesity kills. 
That said, as a yo-yo fat man myself, I understand the struggle between loving to eat, especially the bad stuff, which is so good, and wanting to make it up a flight of stairs without huffing and puffing. I do not understand personally how a person can get to a point that we see them arguing with Dr. Now on TV, but if you listen to their arguments, clearly they've justified at least some part of their morbid obesity in their minds. Now, regarding the biblical aspect, we don't need to go back over the idea of addiction, idolatry, or at the very least, neglecting the care of the body given to you by God. I think we've covered that sufficiently. I also don't think we need to go back over Paul's exhortation to discipline both himself and his body. But Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians that whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's a context behind this verse that directly applied to the church he was writing, but the principle is applicable to all times and all people in all situations. If we're constantly eating foods that cause medical conditions, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, or what have you, are we really doing this for God's glory? Now, I think the argument could be easily made that no, no, we're not. A pastor that I sadly used to listen to, and I won't say his name because I would no longer recommend him, it's a different era in my life, he did have some interesting insights, however, in some of his sermons or messages or whatever you want to call them. In one of his messages, he told about a time he asked the question in a pastor's conference, at least so a story goes, what it says to a congregation when an obese pastor tells the congregation to abstain from sex outside of marriage, to eschew the evils of drink or smoking or drugs or other vices. As witnesses of Christ, our witness extends everywhere. As I've cycled up and down in weight, this is one thing that is factored into my saying, ah, no more, I've put on too much weight. It's a valid question. If we had a pastor that was in the pulpit chain-smoking, telling us not to eat so many chicken McNuggies, most of us would be flabbergasted, possibly even gobsmacked. But the inverse is always overlooked. Now, maybe obesity is more acceptable than smoking, but at the base biblical level, what is the difference really? Proverbs 23 tells us, quote, You, my son, listen and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and the drowsiness will clothe them with rags. Both heavy drinking, drunkenness, and gluttony will destroy a man. Notice it doesn't say don't drink any more than it says don't eat. Just don't be a glutton of either. Going to the Mosaic Laws in Deuteronomy, the parents of a child, and this is an adult child, that's out of control, that has given himself to rebellion, well, they were supposed to come to the elders of the city and say, quote, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not listen to our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of, the, of his city shall stone him, and he will die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. It seems a little harsh to our ears today, but you see that rebellion is, and evil is, tied directly to drunkenness and gluttony. The Bible is clear that gluttony is rebellion. It's idolatry. It's, and I'll even be willing to soften it here a little bit, it's potentially evil. Although, if it's reached the point of sinful idolatry, it's definitely evil. By following the biblical principles and avoiding gluttony, by doing all for the glory of God, we have the side effect, again, of maintaining at least a somewhat healthy diet and thus, on average, extending our lives. Now, I say potentially because I think healthy diet would necessarily mean generally the right nutrition, and I say this as someone who does not eat his vegetables. 
So let me switch into opinions brought to you by Dan for a minute. I know that we have recommendations from every health agency out there, from nutritionists, from doctors, from mom, from grandma, as to what we should eat and how much water to drink and how much sleep that we're supposed to get, et cetera, et cetera. You know, don't eat too much sugar. Don't eat or drink anything with artificial sweeteners. Don't eat salt. Don't eat butter. Stay away from fast food. Live a boring, sad life, et cetera, et cetera. I think that moderation for most people is probably the key, but I also think, and and at least anecdotally, it appears to me that everyone has a different tolerance. Some people need more sleep, some less. Some people process sugar or salt or cholesterol or caffeine much better or much different than others. Some people naturally produce or process various vitamins and minerals better than others. I don't believe there's a perfect number that could be given to anyone uh, on any of these things. I also don't believe the BMI scale, your height to weight ratio, is an accurate target for everyone. A person with more muscle mass, for instance, would have a larger BMI number than is recommended. So all that to say this, we have some amazing medical advancements that allow us to monitor our health. If possible, we need to take advantage of that. If the numbers seem to be skewing in the wrong direction, then seek advice and take action to correct your health. Do the things you know you should do, like not eat only junk, like maintaining at least a reasonable weight, and then monitor your health from there so you can fine-tune yourself to maintain that health. A healthy Christian is a Christian that can maximize his contribution to the purposes and plans of God. A Christian that is unhealthy through his own neglect or abuse is a Christian who cannot focus on God or God's plans or even, in some cases, be a good witness of God. Fourth, continuing on, managing stress. Well, from a physical standpoint, again, the data strongly suggests that stress contributes to a variety of illnesses and diseases. My guess would be that we have no real idea of the extent of the damage stress causes to humans, but it does appear that it can have major negative consequences. So where does stress come from? Well, I'm sure that if I were to ask you what causes you stress, you'd have no problem rattling off at least the top three things that either are currently or at least persistently causing you stress. They probably popped in your mind right there. Now, according to a page on psychcentral.com, causes of stress include family, relationships, finances, work, health, emotions such as feelings of failure, unworthiness, hopelessness, uncertainty, or being overwhelmed or feeling unlovable, and problems in this world such as the economy or pandemics, violence, politics, and now thank you to our overlords, climate change and discrimination in various forms. Are you stressed out now? I don't think any of us could argue with the list, but again, I ask, where does stress come from at its core? And at its core, it's worry. For the most part, you could boil it all down to worrying. And oftentimes, we're worried about things we can't control or things that aren't real, or we're worried about the worst-case scenario, which by definition, it never happens, at least not in this life. I could probably spend the next hour talking about what the Bible says about stress. Proverbs says that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. I think we've all felt the the heaviness in the pit of our stomachs or the tightness in the chest because of worry and anxiety. You know, the feeling of heavy limbs like you're walking through pudding. Stress definitely weighs a person down. But let's do a little biblical rapid fire here, shall we? Let's start with the Old Testament. Psalm 16.8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 34.4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 94, 19, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. 
Psalm 118, 5 through 6, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This was a song, a song of hope. What about the New Testament? Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Or what about the very words of Jesus himself? Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. One could argue that there are as many claim techniques to manage stress as there are people telling you how to manage that stress, but when you come right down to it, it really doesn't matter what you try if you're not following the biblical prescription for stress management, which is to give your worry over to God, to place your faith in a sovereign God, then your stress will not be managed, at least not for long. And again, this is for the Christian, the saved, God's children, not for the unsaved. These are not promises for the unsaved. The unsaved are stuck with the world's methods, which only give that temporary relief, if any relief at all. Now, for the Christian, this isn't always easy. We tend to want to be in control, to fix, to manage, to handle things on our own. (laughs) Now, I got this. But we're called to trust, not stress. And again, following the oft-stated biblical command appears to carry with it the side benefit of extending your lifespan. Next, what about good sleep? Well, Let's broaden this out a little bit. Man was designed to work, and man was designed to rest. What exactly does that mean? Well, you'll probably have the majority of people that will argue that seven to eight hours of sleep a night is the right amount of sleep. I'll bet that most don't get that much, and again, I I think that the required amount differs for everyone. I could be wrong, but it sure seems like I'm right. 
Anyway, as most of us know that have even a general knowledge of the creation account in Genesis, God created for six days, then rested on the seventh. Now, that's not the rest like you and I rest. God wasn't worn out, tired, physically or mentally exhausted. He paused. Think of it like the, uh, the, the Selah that we find in the Psalms. A pause, but more than just a few beats to catch your breath. This is a contemplative pause. God stepped back from creating and viewed his creation, concluding that it, all of it, down to every last atom, every molecule, every plant, animal, star, everything was very good. When you look at our calendar, there's a reason we have a year. The year is based on rotation around the sun. There's a reason we have months. Those are the lunar cycles. There's a reason we have a day. That's the rotation of the earth itself. But there's no physical reason why we have a seven-day week. In fact, we have 52 weeks a year at seven days per week, which equals 364 days. But a year is 365 and a quarter days. We could have more easily made 73 five-day weeks. That would have come out even or very close. But the reason we have the seven-day week is due to the creation week that God utilized to create everything, ending in a pause, a rest. In fact, side note, the French, during their revolution, unlike the colonies in future United States, wanted to eliminate God from their revolution, so they removed the seven-day week and created ten-day weeks. I believe, if I remember correctly, that it was a work seven-day, take a three-day weekend type of week, and then the months were all 30 days, so it would all divide equally, and then I guess they did something with the five days at the end of the year. Not really sure. But violence soared, depression heightened, accidents happened. I mean, everything fell apart because man was taken out of the natural rhythm instituted by God, so the 10-day week was very short-lived, and the seven-day God-ordained week was re-implemented pretty quickly. Now, some of you are likely looking at your player of choice thinking, Sabbath, Dan, you're forgetting about the Sabbath. And uh, <clears throat> no, apparently I'm not. The Sabbath was mandated by God in the Ten Commandments. But again, God did that not as punishing, you know, do it because I say so type of thing, but because rest is very important, as is the focus on God. We get clarification in the New Testament that the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Depending on the pastor or teacher you listen to, some will say the Sabbath commandment, which is now Sunday for the Christian, is still in play, while others will say that the Sabbath is the only commandment that has not been specifically repeated in the New Testament, so it's not the same as it was in the Old. doesn't matter. Regardless, we're told over and over in the Bible in various ways that rest is important. Jesus said in Matthew that all who labor and are heavy laden should come to Jesus where he can take your burden and give you his light and easy yoke. He will give you rest. In Psalms, we hear that man rises early, goes to bed late, lives in a world of anxiety, and does all of that in vain. But God gives his beloved sleep. In Exodus, as already alluded to, God says, quote, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. None of creation is designed to just go continuously. And that day is the seventh day because God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The seventh day, or as we could say, one day in seven, has been blessed by God to be holy. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is the non-rest periods. Proverbs warns us multiple times that if we love sleep, we'll grow poor, that the sluggard turns in his bed like a door on its hinges. There's a balance of waking and sleeping, of working and not working, of doing life, and of stopping to spend focused time on God. The balance is probably nearly impossible to hit perfectly, 
but we should ensure that we're working daily, resting daily, getting the sleep we require, and spending time to focus on our Creator and our Savior. And as with the other points, by following the pattern, the commandment, the example set by God, we apparently get the side effect of extending our lives. Finally, positive social relationships. Again, the Bible covers a variety of relationships and how to interact within those relationships. We have husband and wife, parent to child, child to parent, master to slave, or you could think of it as employer to employee at this point, and slave to master, man to God, God to man, friend to friend, neighbor to neighbor, enemy to enemy, Christian to Christian, and the list goes on and on. The Bible tells us not to abuse our slaves, not to take advantage of our masters, to love the wife, to respect the husband, to obey and honor parents, to not exasperate children, to love your enemies, to love your neighbors, and that the world will see our love and know our love. They'll see the difference in the Christian in how we love our fellow Christians. We're also told to get our butts to church. Even if there are conflicts and disagreements, we're to get to church, interact with others, live in community with our church community. Iron can't sharpen iron if we only have one side of that equation. We can't hold each other up if we have nobody to hold up or to hold us up. We can't be held accountable if we're not in a position where we're known to the point that someone could tell we need to be held accountable. Relationships are given a high importance in the Bible. We find out early on that it's not good for man to be alone, so God created woman. We do know that there are some men and women that have the gift of singleness. But even then, it's not good for that man or woman to be alone. We all need positive relationships. We see the loving, close relationship between David and Jonathan. And no, there's nowhere in the Bible that even sort of implies that this was anything other than a deep friendship. For those that try to make this into a homosexual-type relationship for their own worldview purposes, well, they must rip what is known wildly out of context and spin it into what they want it to be. Personally, it seems like a precarious position to take, you know, to twist the Bible into a position to justify your favorite sin. Of course, I say that knowing that for some, the blasphemous manipulation of the Bible in this point and many points is really just kind of one of their favorite hobbies. The Bible is very clear through the laws, through advice, through examples that positive social relationships is of vital importance for humanity. We are not called or designed to do life alone. We don't have to be the life of the party or have a thousand friends. The perfect number of friends and best friends differs for every single person. But the principle of positive relationships is quite clear in the Bible. And for the last time, it appears that apparently it has the side effect of extending our lifespan. So when I go back to this article and I look at the chart, I'm 47, nearly 48 at this point, which, I mean, that just seems impossible as I don't feel a day over 94. I've had a number of these habits since I was 40, but we'll split the difference and look at my potential life extension based on a starting age of 45. How many of these do I have? Well, I'm not going to go into specifics here, but I'd say that if I look at those habits that I definitely have and those I'd give myself partial credit for, I probably sit in the six to seven range of habits. I get a good boost with no smoking, no drugs, no drinking, and generally I don't stress about things that much. Then I kind of get partial credit for the others. So at 45 years old with six or seven habits established, it appears that my life expectancy at that point should be prolonged by 15 to 18 years as compared to those who do not have these habits. Now to sum this up, I find it interesting that in a world of 
the psychobabble, drugs or procedures to address seemingly everything, the surveys, polls and studies and the analyses and conclusions resulting from, of personal advice from every person, TED Talks, top 10 lists, social media, research papers, news articles, podcasts, YouTube, postmodernist thinking and moral relativism, all telling us how to live and what to do and how to fix our lives and how to live longer and be stronger and live our best lives now. When you come right down to it, the Bible, once again, has the answers to the largest and smallest questions of life. It almost seems like if we were to take it seriously, that would be fully optimal. Ah, but what do I know? And now I need to go be physically active for a bit. For the study tells me so. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. I didn't see you there. Ah, uh, no, that sounds stupid. So, we meet again. Uh, I think I've used that one before. Kind of silly anyway. Hey, baby, how you doing? You must be tired because you've been running around my mind all week. Oh, wait a minute. Whoops, that's the, uh, that's the wrong situation. For that. You know, I think it's probably best if we just get to the goal update. So despite the best attempts of my enemies, I survived yet another week, and with that brings a week of accomplishments, or lack thereof, and that's what we really need to discuss here, right? Let's talk about weight, shall we? So last week I weighed in at 194.4, which is up 0.2 pounds from the week before. Now this isn't overly shocking, although I kind of would have thought I would have lost a little bit rather than gained or stayed the same. I mean, I was over on my goal calorie whatever count by about 300 a day on average, but that still only clocks me in at about 1,875 per day. I also got four workouts in through the week, which from trying to calculate my calorie burn in the past, yada, yada, typically means I'll have a daily burn of 2,000-ish calories. So I don't know. I guess it's probably about where I would be, you know, somewhere around an even push. Now, this once again bumps my goal for weekly loss average for the rest of the year up just a tick to now 1.6 pounds per week. Now, I'll be honest, not overly focused here on this. I know, probably hard to tell, right? I mean, this is the general malaise that kind of washes over me with regard to working out or dieting. It's not really shocking to me. This has pretty much been my entire adult life that this has happened. Just kind of ebbs and flows or yo-yos, as it were. Ah, well, we'll see what happens. I've said before that I'm not a diet or exercise person. I hate both of those with a passion that's infinitely greater than something with a large amount of passion. I need motivation to do this. The problem is motivation for me is not your typical motivators, right? It's it's not saying, oh, you'll feel better or, you know, you'll live longer or someone yelling at me or something. I've got to want to do it myself. And frankly, right now, I just don't want to. That said, I do actually feel some motivation to work out in the current way I'm doing it. What's my motivation? I, I, nothing. I don't know. I just, I kind of want to do it. 
I don't know. I know I said I hate exercising, and that's true, but what I'm currently doing is something I currently want to do, so I'll just do it. The diet thing is less motivating right now, I'll just be honest, and it's because it causes me hunger, and I don't like that. Yes, I, I know that's a poor excuse, but that's literally all I got, so just get off my back. And I won't go into it here, but next week's goal update with regard to weight, ah, it's not going to be good. I mean, we had visitors at work for three days this past week because of a big system change, of which I'm a key part of one segment of that change, and there was stress, and the boss ordered lunches in for those three days, and I'm weak, and yeah, I'll go into it more in the next update, but, but that update ain't going to be so good. But that's for next week, right? For this week, I'm shading this a light red, and I'm just going to say, why worry about next week's update? <laughs> this update has enough to worry about on its own, right? Uh, moving to pages red, this will be quick, I didn't do that either. As I've said before, this stays a solid green for the rest of the year, as I've far outdone my goal for the year, but uh, yeah, nothing last week. Now, that'll be different in the next update, at least to some degree, yet to be determined, but uh, as of this update, yeah, nothing. Uh, now, Bible reading. Okay, this one is a positive, at least. I did my reading five days out of the week. That brings my progress against my goal to 80%, which is under the goal, obviously, but that's a light green. I'm still behind, but it was a positive step. So at the macro level, in my daily regular type reading, I'm through Genesis 35. Remember that I'm doing a chronological reading, so Job has also been read in there. And my in-depth type study is up through Genesis 4, and wow, is that slow going, the way I'm doing it at least. So as I've been doing, here are some questions or tidbits or whatever you want to call them, some observations that I've noted down during my reading that, I don't know, maybe you'll find interesting. Can we talk about Jacob's age for just a minute? Now, when I learned these historical accounts, you know, as a kid in Sunday school, the, the flannel graph representations of these characters, I don't think those reflected reality anymore. Now, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Then I'm going to pause for a few seconds, uh, enough time for you to pause your podcast player and just think for a minute. And then we'll, we'll answer the questions. So first, how old was Jacob when he left home? You know, he was kind of running away from Esau. And this is when he saw Rachel and watered her sheep for her and then went back to Laban's where he pledged to work seven years in order to marry Rachel. Next, how old was Jacob when he married Leah and then Rachel and started having kids? And then finally, how old was Jacob when he left Laban with his wives, his children, his possessions, his entire household, which is the same time that he wrestled with God, if that helps you think of how old he was, which is also the same time that he met back up with Esau for the first time since he had left home, worried that Esau was still mad at him, yada, yada, yada. And remember, Esau was Jacob's twin, so, uh, you know, doing the math, Esau would have been the same age as Jacob. Okay, I'm going to pause for just a few seconds. You can pause your player if you'd like. Think about it, restart it, and we'll continue on. Okay, I'm guessing that you paused and thought and pondered and reasoned out. You have your guesses. So what do you think? Now look, I'm sure that I knew this, or I at least had heard this, but for some reason it just didn't stick, I guess. Okay, am I alone in thinking that Jacob was fairly young when he met Rachel, obviously a little older when he married Rachel and Leah, and then maybe just like a strapping middle-aged man when he wrestled with God? Yeah, not so much, at least not from our perspective. So Jacob was 70 years old, 7-0, 70 years old when he met Rachel. Now, seven years later is when he was given Leah as his wife first in a deception 
perpetrated by Laban, then Rachel in exchange for a pledge to work another seven years. So doing the math, now he's 77. When Jacob left and took his household, uh, which is the same trip where he met up with Esau, the same trip where he wrestled with God, that was 20 years after he married Leah and Rachel. He was now 97 when he wrestled God. Am I the only one that finds that shocking? Am I the only one that seems to remember a somewhat ripped kind of flannel graph, younger Jacob wrestling God? I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I don't remember a nearly 100-year-old man wrestling God. Now, the entire Laban, Jacob, Rachel, Leah saga is an almost comical list of deceptions and lies and blackmailings and all sorts of things. It's like they're trying to out-deceive the other guy at every turn. Here's a short summarized list that I wrote down. After seven years of work for Rachel's hand in marriage, Laban gives Jacob Leah, as that suddenly became their custom. And then he made Jacob pledge another seven years for Rachel. Leah tries to buy Jacob's love by having children, specifically sons. Rachel literally sells a night of unbridled passion, or whatever, doesn't actually say that, to Leah for some mandrakes. Rachel and Leah, trying to outdo each other, give their servants to Jacob to have more kids. Laban says pretty much whatever he has to say in order to get Jacob to stay and continue working for him. Jacob vows to work. Uh, for at least a period of time longer for Laban, the deal being that he'll keep only the defective animals, right, which he obviously had a plan to breed. Laban agrees to this and then immediately has someone go and get all the defective sheep and drive them a few days away. So Jacob starts with literally nothing. Jacob enacts his plan, which it's it's really unclear in the Bible as to exactly how he did this, but he bred the defective-looking stock out of the strong stock, and he bred the good-looking animals out of the weaker stock, making his flock robust and Laban's flock weak. And Laban changed their work arrangements multiple times over the years. Jacob finally packed up and left without telling anyone Rachel stole from Laban. Rachel lied about being on her period so she could cover up her theft. I mean, this is just a short list. The number of lies and amount of deception, the manipulation by literally everyone in this entire account is just crazy. And then we see the character or integrity problems with Jacob just throughout, and, and it passes down. So he lied to Esau about meeting him in Seir, and then he went about 100 miles to the north to Shechem. Shechem is where his daughter Dinah was, I guess, raped by the prince, as defiled, I'm assuming raped by the prince. And this is where we see the integrity and character issues start popping up with the sons. So the king came to ask for Dinah, for his son, to be married, but Jacob apparently wasn't there. So the king spoke with the sons, uh, and the sons struck a deal with him, saying that, well, sure, we can all intermarry, but the men of Shechem need to be circumcised, which they gladly did, because they thought that they were going to be able to pretty much just kind of pillage all of Jacob's stuff. You know, everything of his will become ours, whatever. And then Simeon and Levi, sons number one and two, went and murdered all the men while they were in a compromised position. Then Jacob, in chapter 34, verse 30, shows that his concern is with himself. He says, quote, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and strike me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. It's kind of a kind of a little self-centered focus on there. I mean, a lot of stuff had just gone on, and, and he was concerned about him. 
We see in chapter 35, Jacob had his household put away all of their foreign gods in response to a command from God to move and build an altar and worship him, which means he had allowed the household that he was supposed to be heading up to, uh, you know, practice idol worship. Now, I know this is a different time and it's a different context, but but that shows, I think, a lack of control or a lack of discipline or, or something along those lines, right? We see that Reuben, which is the third board son, had sex with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, and Jacob heard about it. That's all it really says. He heard about it, but apparently he did nothing about his son's abomination. I mean, it's just amazing when you start to line up some of these points as to the truly fallen nature of some of these patriarchs, and yet God's plan was to use the imperfect to bring about salvation for the world. Okay, backing up some, just a few more quick points. Genesis 4.3 reads, quote, So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. And then, of course, we read about the account ultimately of Cain killing Abel. But that phrase, in the course of time, doesn't, like I guess I always just assume, necessarily mean, you know, eventually as time moved along. There's actually two Hebrew words that make up that phrase. The first is, Q-E-S, Kates is how that's pronounced. The second is Yom, Y-O-M. The second is the easiest. This is the same word that's used for day in the creation account in Genesis 1. Yom is a word that can mean a specific amount of time or a general amount of time or a point in time. It's all based on context. Kates is the word that we've interpreted, I guess, in the course of. The Hebrew definition of this is actually the end or an extremity. So really, this could read, or maybe it should read, at the end of time or at the end of days. Now, this was not the end of days, but this was when the first murder happened, the first bloodshed of a human. So was this actually saying that this was the end of a specific form of human innocence? I mean, sin was in the world. Adam and Eve had disobeyed God. They had lied. But murdering an image bearer of God is a different level of sin, right? I mean, I don't know, but it's interesting that this phrase is really saying at the end of time, when on the surface, it doesn't appear to be at the end of time. And maybe that's why they chose to translate the English uh, into in the course of time, because it just it's easier making sense of that. I don't know. Lastly, in verse 26 of Genesis 4, we're told that Seth had a son named Enosh. Quote, then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Then they did this? Why didn't they do this before? The word for call is Q-A-R-A, kara, and can mean many things. But what fits in this context is that man was crying out. So Enosh lived for about the first 100 years of Noah's life, to give you some scope on this. Adam was 130 when he had Seth. Seth was 105 when he had Enosh. Enosh lived 905 years total. Okay, so that was, he was around 800 years old when Noah popped onto the scene. So add all that stuff up, we're talking about 1100 years, give or take, after Adam and Eve sinned and somewhat less than that since the first murder. Now, Was it in the days of Enosh where man really started to fall apart, where uh, there was a noticeable split between people that were, at least from a human standpoint, generally good and generally bad? And as society started to crumble, were there some at this point, somewhere in this point that started to cry out to Yahweh for help, for 
relief for restoration. Now, I'm not sure what else this would mean, uh, but we know that when the flood happened, quote, Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So I'd say that the eventual slide into a depraved society must have really started to become evident in the days of Enosh. Okay, this update, again, has gone on for probably too long. So let me know what you think. There, don't let me know what you think. I mean, I can't force you to do that. You're free to do as you'd like, really. Okay, bye.